0: Well, I wonder if uh, 2020 may have prepared us for Christmas in a way we didn't anticipate. Because, as you know, and have just been reminded in the reading of Matthew 2, Christmas was born in a season of deep distress and darkness and tragedy. Fear encompasses the narrative, it pervades the entire Christmas story, this fear, and it's just scary. And it's horrendous, and and uh, so as we come to the end of 2020 and come to the end of the Christmas season, I thought it would be good for us to spend time in Matthew two and be reminded that this is not new to God, and that God is the master of bringing goodness out of evil and light out of darkness, and that's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter two this morning. I don't want to pick on Hallmark movies. Okay, Hallmark movies get way too much pick on, picked on. They're they they they're picked on all the time in this season because they're mass-produced in the same kind of form. But I'm going to pick on them. Babylon, the Babylon Bee, which many of you know is a satirical Christian website that's designed to poke fun at things and make us giggle, released a couple of years ago an article entitled... Hallmark Channel takes dark, gritty, new turn with the movie, The Christmas Slaughter. And here's what the article says. Studio City, California. Everyone looks forward to the light, fluffy Christmas movies. The Hallmark Channel airs nonstop for three months at the end of each year, but the cable channel is taking a dark turn this year with several gritty new films. The first of these, The Christmas Slaughter, features a handsome young businessman forced to go home to the country for the holidays, where he meets a charming girl raised on a farm, but uh uh-oh, she's actually a demon-possessed axe murderer. According to the Hallmark Channel, the young couple must learn how to deal with their differences with the protagonist having trouble adjusting from life in the big city and his love interest having trouble with her demon-influenced insatiable desire to slaughter everyone she's ever loved under the full moon. Add in the crazy hijinks of the couple's nosy parents and old love interests coming to call and you have yourself a recipe for holiday cheer, and lots of bloody, senseless slaughter. We really want to bring people together for the holidays with fare that's light and festive, but also full of blood and guts, Hallmark Channel Programming Director Don Anderson said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly. Watching Hallmark movies has become a national pastime during the holiday season, and this year we're upping the ante with the gruesome and disturbing. Oh boy, I tell you, it's really gotten everyone in my home into the Christmas spirit, he added with a chuckle. The Hallmark Channel has also greenlit another brutal holiday horror film, Headless for the Holidays, sources confirmed at publishing time. Now, of course the Babylon Bee is satirizing the way that Christmas is often pictured as a nice, sentimental holiday that's out of touch with some of the realities of the world in which we live. Christmas cards picture Mary and Joseph serenely looking on the baby Jesus as he sleeps in the manger with Angels hovering overhead, the stars shining down, the shepherds and wise men all kneeling reverently in worship with the words, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And that's not altogether historically inaccurate, it's just incomplete. Because the message that that particular version of Christmas paints is not the total picture that the Bible gives us of the Christmas story. The total picture is here in Matthew chapter 2. God didn't bring his son into the world into a safe and peaceful environment, but into a sinful, troubled world that we still live in all around us. Russ Moore said, Jesus was not born into a gauzy, snowy winter wonderland of sweetly singing angels and cute reindeer nuzzling one another at the side of his manger. He was born into a war zone. Joseph, Mary, Mary, And their newborn infant son had to grab their belongings and flee by night to a foreign country to protect Jesus from being killed by a paranoid king. Who then massacred all the little boys in in Bethlehem under the age of two. So the complete Christmas story includes the flight of poor refugees who had to flee from their lives from an evil dictator. That's often not included. Fear is really everywhere in the Christmas story, isn't it? The Herod, the king of Israel, is scared when he hears of the birth of this promised son of David because he rightly, in the long run, sees in this birth his own doom and the fall of his own dynasty. He was, as it says in Matthew 2, verse 3, troubled. That's a mild way of putting it. (laughs) This fear triggered in him a fight response that was similar to Ahab and Jezebel. And it was the vow to kill all male children to make sure that this troubler of Israel never came of age. That must have seemed like strength and winning to those who identify aggressiveness with efficacy. But it was the action of a frightened, frightened man lashing out at a perceived threat. So this morning, we're not going to walk through Matthew chapter 2 verse by verse. I'm just going to draw six themes, six big picture themes, six big picture comforting truths from this story that God, this historical narrative, that God gives us that will not only help us now, but I think will set us on a healthy trajectory for the as we look into 2021 because these things do not change. God's sovereignty in the midst of this scary little Christmas doesn't change tomorrow. It's still these truths will be just as true on December 27, 2021 as they are December 27, 2020 and every year and every day and every moment thereafter. So let's start with these six truths. Number one, God's sovereignty does not mean there is not real evil in the world. God's sovereignty does not mean there is not real evil in the world. You know, every good Christmas movie has a bad guy that's trying to wreck things. Scott Farkas in The Christmas Story, Harry and Marv in Home Alone, The Grinch, Hans Gruber, and Die Hard, which is a Christmas movie. As J.C. Ryle says, the rulers of this world are seldom friendly with the cause of God. Herod was one of those. Herod was one of the most despicable characters, not just in biblical history, but world history. He was the Roman appointed governor of Judea, He took office around 40 years before the birth of Christ. He was known as Herod the Great and was responsible for building the vast channels and aqueducts and rebuilding Solomon's temple. But alongside these significant architectural and structural achievements, he was also ruthless and paranoid. He was insecure and he ruled by fear. When the wise men came to Jerusalem, he was almost 70 years old in this narrative in Matthew chapter 2, and he was sick with disease from which he would shortly die, as we see in chapter 2, verse 19. Over the course of Herod's life, he had, note this, 10 wives. He murdered one of them and had ongoing conflict with his sons, putting some of them in prison and executing two of them. As he faced death, he rounded up many Jewish leaders and ordered that they should all be slaughtered at the moment of his death so that there would be a national mourning rather than a national rejoicing. Five days before he died, he executed another one of his sons who had threatened his rule. So the slaughter of all the young boys in Bethlehem was completely in line with his past of murdering everybody who was a threat to his throne. So it's not surprising here that we see evil in such stark, vivid colors in the person of Herod. This ruler is so marked by fear and paranoia and insecurity who sees anyone as a potential threat to his rule, as worthy of death. And notice he does all of this under the guise and false pretense of righteousness which makes what he is doing doubly evil. Because not only is he viciously attacking the people, especially the the people under two years old, the male children, but he's doing it before he does all... That's his real motive. But he's doing all this, Oh, bring Jesus to me that I also may worship him. Oh, really, Herod? You really want to worship him, do you? See, powerful people like Herod will often co-opt religious language in order to manipulate people. Herod is using his power as a means of maintaining his power, which is abusing his power. The moment anyone compromises righteousness for the sake of maintaining power has proven that they are not worthy of ever having power to begin with. Christ's kingdom relates to power radically different than how the world does. In the world, power is a tool that you wield against your enemies. In the kingdom of God, power is a tool to serve the vulnerable. If we lack power, then we, then we demonstrate our righteousness by standing up against any power that devours the image of God in other people. If we have power, either we go the way of Herod, which is to preserve or protect through some form of aggression, or instead of protecting our own rights, comforts, and traditions, we love our neighbor as ourself. So God's sovereignty does not mean there is not real evil in the world. There is real evil, and in this particular narrative, it takes the form of an unjust and wicked king. Secondly, God is actively involved in human events. God is actively involved in human events. God ordains all events for his glory. He chose the time and place for the Savior to be born, didn't he? We read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. God intended for his Son to be born in this environment, in this political context, in this wicked day. The wise men asked in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So clearly God directed the wise men through the star to make the long journey to Bethlehem to see this young child. The chief priests and scribes knew from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah and ruler would be born in Bethlehem. We see that quoted in verses 5 and 6. And also God actively intervened to warn the wise men to not return to Herod, to warn Joseph to flee to Egypt, and to direct him after Herod's death to return back to Israel. And to warn him not to settle down in Judea, but to move north to Nazareth into the region of Galilee. God is doing all of this in the midst of all of this. (laughs) He's, He's doing these little things, moving this family around to avoid this evil. God is directly involved in this. The Bible is clear, and we know this because we're well instructed, that God is actively involved in everything in the world, from the weather, to feeding the birds, to the affairs of the nations. So we can trust him, brothers and sisters, that he's actively involved in both the minor and the major events of our lives. Everything from the frustrating driver in front of you to the cancer that threatens our life to the unpredictability of a 2020. It's not that we are robots with no power of agency or choice, but rather in a way that we can't comprehend, God providentially uses human choices to accomplish his sovereign will for his people's good and for his ultimate glory. And because he's not a passive spectator in human events, we can trust him as we see him work in all of life's experiences, even in the midst of this young family of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Number three, God directs his people in times of confusion, danger, and fear. Now, we've already seen some of the ways he's done that, by the ways he's navigated this family through this maze of difficulty with Herod and the way he's coming to attack. But in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, we also see in the previous chapter, God using dreams to direct the people involved. Now, through a dream, he directs Joseph, remember, not to divorce Mary, even though she's pregnant, but to take her as his wife. And he uses a dream to warn the wise men not to return to Herod. And again, he uses dreams to direct Joseph to flee to Egypt, to return to Israel and not settle in Judea, as we've seen. Now, it's interesting. Except for this narrative here, the only other reference to dreams in Matthew's gospel is Pilate's wife dreaming regarding Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. That's the only other reference we get to dreams. It's kind of interesting. My point is, is that we shouldn't take this as normative for the way God typically leads his people all right? Leadership through dreams is exceedingly rare in Scripture. Now, while we can't doubt the stories of many Muslim brothers and sisters that God is using dreams and visions in some way to bring many Muslim people to faith in Christ in our day, we can't deny that he can use them, but that's not the typical way even Scripture presents his leadership as the normal means of directing us through the wisdom that's found in his word. Through the godly counsel of mature believers, those are the sorts of things that God does in these days to lead us. So when we're in times of confusion and fear and uncertainty, what do we do? We seek the Lord. We seek the Lord in his word. We seek the Lord in prayer. We seek the Lord in godly counsel of brothers and sisters in the church. And often he will lead us as he impresses on us a verse or a passage or a truth from his word that gives us sufficient guidance in how we ought to proceed supplying us with the wisdom that we need, and that can sometimes come directly through his word, can sometimes come through prayer, can also come through encouragement and counsel from other brothers and sisters. But nonetheless, God does not leave us to ourselves when we're faced with perplexing, difficult circumstances. He directs his people, especially in times of confusion and danger and fear. When when God's people are under the most threat, and are, and, are, and, are, and are taken captive under the most perilous and difficult circumstances, God shows up in his intimate, personal connections in ways that aren't seen in other parts of Scripture. So we should expect nothing less than miraculous deliverance and visions and dreams right here, because this is concerning the birth and securing of our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God is taking this much interest in preserving the life of His Son and making sure that He lives the perfect life that He was called to live and die the vicarious atoning death that He was, was designed and purposed to die, then we should feel totally loved by that and know that in our lesser, though no less significant stories, God is at work. If God protected the source of our salvation... In the beginning, he will continue to complete the good work he has begun in us until it's completed at the day of Christ Jesus. Number four, God is still in control even when evil seems to prevail. God is still in control even when evil seems to prevail. Now, God warned the wise men not to report back to Herod, and he warned Joseph, as we've seen, to travel with Mary and the infant Jesus to Egypt for safety. Now this is a reminder that in a world of suffering when it seems that Satan has the upper hand God always has an ace in the deck. Always God is sovereign over all things. If God had asked my opinion, which I'm thankful he doesn't, I would probably advised him this way. Instead of the way he sorted it out here. God, why don't you go ahead and strike Herod dead in the front of everybody? So they, you can totally see that you're God, that Jesus is the true son of God, or just have Jesus stand up and say, Herod, die as a little baby, and Herod drops dead. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, God did that when he took another Herod. Not the baby thing, but God directly took the life of Herod Agrippa, right, in Acts chapter 12. And Herod was already ill, as we know from history, with a disease that would ultimately take his life, so why not take him out before he carried out this atrocity? I mean, I don't we don't, we're not told how many children are going to die as a result of this, but we read in verse 18 in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah: a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. This was horrific. <laughs> God why not spare these parents of lifelong heartache but God allowed Herod to live and to kill now that that challenges us that challenges a lot of people today Matthew chapter 2 verse 18 says that this was fulfilled or this word was given this pronouncement this this edict from Herod was given and carried out in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15. Now, Jeremiah's prophecy in, Jeremiah, in, the, in in Jeremiah's account referred to the women in Judah weeping over the deaths of their children when Nebuchadnezzar's army wiped out Jerusalem. The book of Lamentations further describes the horror of that slaughter and the deportation of God's chosen people. Matthew sees that prophecy as having a double fulfillment, First, during the Babylonian captivity of Israel's history, and now, again, in Herod's massacre of the children. But the point is this. Neither of those tragedies thwarted God's plan. It fulfilled God's plan. In Matthew chapter 2, in the face of Herod's horrific slaughter of the children, the Savior of the world was born and protected for his mission. Herod had his plan, but it turned out that he was not as powerful as he originally thought. Like every ruler that seeks to challenge God, his attempts to snuff out the life of the real king was thwarted by God. Here's what David says in Psalm 2, which was no doubt the posture that God himself had as Herod was trying to do his wicked work. David describes God's response to the nations and rulers who plot against God when he says in Psalm 2, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the Lord's posture. He says, Go ahead and try it, you kings of the world that think you're so powerful. I'll show you who's boss. Now this is what we should take away from the life of Herod. The people we think possess the most power, who put fear in our hearts, are really not all that powerful. God is not troubled by the rebellion of earthly leaders. He laughs. Joseph and Mary hear the tidings that Herod is dead, and at once they returned in safety to their own land. It's almost like Matthew gives, he gives Herod, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the vast majority of chapter 2 to describe his plan and how he's going to carry this out to try to thwart the, the, and snuff out the life of Jesus. And then in verse 19, just almost in passing, he says, oh yeah, but when Herod died, they went back. God's not troubled. This is an important point and one that's typically lost on many of us, including me. There are those who would have us, brothers and sisters, to live in fear, not of God, but of one another, and to suggest that what we need for the survival of Christianity is a better Pharaoh, the aggression of a better Caesar, a front seat in the court of a better Nebuchadnezzar. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the announcement in the womb of a Nazarene virgin onward, Shows us that the power and the wisdom and the kingdom of God come to us in a strikingly different way. And J.C. Ryle describes that way. He says, The rulers of millions have no power to retain life when the hour of their departure comes. The murderer of helpless infants must himself die. True Christians should never be greatly moved by the persecution of man. Their enemies may be strong and they may be weak, but still they ought not to be afraid. What has become of the pharaohs and Nero's and Diocletians who at once fiercely persecuted the people of God? Where is the enmity of Charles IX of France, as Pastor Thad mentioned, and Bloody Mary of England? They did their utmost to cast the truth down to the ground, but the truth rose again from the earth and still lives, and they are dead and moldering in the grave. Let not the heart of any believer fail. Death is a mighty leveler. And can take any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. The Lord lives forever. His enemies are only men. The truth shall always prevail. (laughs) And that's what we see here in this story. Number five, we can trust God because he entered into our suffering to save us. Now this, brothers and sisters, is where our hearts find rest. Because admittedly, that last point, when we're thinking about God's sovereignty and the way he chose to work things out, and we see the death of these infant children under Herod and the fact that God could have stopped that. And we think, does God care? Does God care? Of course he cares. And that's what this whole point is about, is that God's not standing off and just saying, yeah, I'm just going to arbitrarily, in my sovereignty, decide, eh, let some suffering happen today. No, God himself is a God who enters into suffering to save us. He takes his own medicine, so to speak. God's not just a God who lets others suffer. He's a God who's willing in the person of his son to suffer and to die. Jesus wasn't born into a protected bubble in a palace. His life was threatened from infancy. He later suffered horribly at the hands of sinners you think about this think about those mothers and fathers in israel who were fearful that their sons lives would be taken god had already signed up for that way before they did god put his son into the world to suffer from infancy knowing that the jewel of his the the, the pride of his life the, the the apple of his eye the joy of we could say this of god's own soul would be given up to this and of course we know that even though his life was threatened from infancy he later suffered at the hands of sinners unjustly and cruelly Jesus never behaved like a king the world expects he didn't have any academic credentials social status if Jesus were in the world today he'd have very very few followers on Instagram or Twitter He'd have no book deals. His podcast would have three downloads by Joseph, Mary, and Mary Mary probably listened twice because that's her boy. He was a Nazarene. Remember John one forty six. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, far from being a city of movers and shakers, was known as a city of underdogs and losers. This was backwoods. Small, irrelevant, on the fringes, hick town. Some of us grew up in those. We know all about those. The world has always despised people from the wrong places and with the wrong credentials, but that's not how God rolls. Salvation is from the Jews, a small nation, a little group, seldom in power. He dispatches Goliath with a rock, From a shepherd boy. He brings down the walls of Jericho by marching. He whittles Gideon's army down to 300. When the oldest son gets the wealth and the second or younger son had no special or social standing, God picks Abel over Cain. He picks Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Ephraim over Manasseh. At a time when women were valued for their beauty and fertility, God chooses Sarah over Hagar and Leah over Rachel. And he works through women who can't have children like Rebecca and Hannah and Samson's mother and Elizabeth. The best things always come out of Nazareth. At the climax of his life, Jesus went not to a throne. He went to a cross. There, he bore our evil and sin, if we believe and trust him. His death on the cross is God's provision for the root cause of what's happening here, which is the evil of sin in the human heart. Jesus says to us, I don't care who you are. If you've been a morally upstanding vegan, or with a 4.0 GPA, or if you could be on the paid staff in hell, No matter your pedigree, background, or how deep or dark your secrets, or how badly you've messed up, if you'll repent of your sin, you'll come to me, I'll receive you. Not only will I receive you, I delight to do it. He's been doing it since Matthew 2, and even before the foundation of the world, as he chose us in Christ. But to reap the blessings of God's salvation through Jesus, you have to trust completely in him as your savior, from God's judgment when we talk about all the horrible evil tyrants like Herod it's easy to think well thank God I'm not like that I've never killed anyone I'm a good person I surely won't face God's judgment but brothers and sisters friends the Bible's clear Romans three twenty three says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God doesn't just say well if you're like Herod No, while punishment will be worse for murderers like Herod, the Bible warns that all have sinned and will face God's judgment. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we're a lot more like Herod than unlike him in our natural state. There's a Herod that lives within each one of us. What do you mean? There's an inner tyrant that wants to rule. The war that is closest to home is the one living inside of you right now. It's called remaining sin. We have our own cosmic authority problems. Every time we actively sin, we're acting like Herod. No, God, I will not do things your way, I will do things my way. We say to Jesus, okay, you can be king over this part of my life, this and that, but don't touch that. Don't touch my sexuality, don't touch my business practices. Don't touch the way I handle my money. Don't touch the way I treat people. Don't mess with my happy little kingdom, Jesus. Don't tell me that my purpose in life is to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. My purpose is to deny my neighbor, take up my comfort, and follow my dreams. And you're the supporting actor in this plot. If the center of your story is you, you don't get to celebrate Christmas because for you, it's fake. If Christ is at the center of your story, Christmas is for you. That's what Christmas is all about. A king coming. But by nature, we all want to be king of our lives. And when someone comes along saying that they're king, one of you has to give in. So according to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from sin, the sin of self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-absorption, which resides in all of our hearts. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. By nature, we don't want to serve God or others. We want both of them to serve us. So in every little heart, there's a little Herod that wants to rule and that's threatened by anything that may compromise our own sovereignty. There's this natural enmity that rises up in every human heart against all the claims of sovereignty over it. Now, as believers in Christ, that master is defeated. But his presence is not yet eradicated. Okay? The dominion of sin has been broken. The presence of sin has not yet been taken away. So even though we're freed from sin's power and mastery and we're freed from sin's penalty, we're nevertheless not free yet from sin's presence. And so we need to be aware that there is living in us still that inner Herod. But the good news is this, is that Christ offers mercy and forgiveness all the way to heaven. Heaven is not the reward of those who have endless good deeds. It's offered as God's free gift. Now to the one who does not work, Romans 4 says... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him. I read that wrong. Let me say it again. Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So the moment we stop trusting in our works and start trusting in Jesus' works for us is the day of salvation for us. So if you have yet to do that, continue no longer under the false image of freedom that Satan offers you. You know, so often we think that we're truly free if we're not living for Christ. We're really the free people in the world. No, Romans two say, or Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're walking according to the flesh, according to the prince of the power of the air. We don't, we're not free when we're outside of Christ. We're only truly free when we have the right yoke on us. But since evil has seemed to prevail throughout human history, how can we know that Jesus will return and ultimately triumph? In a world where evil people oppress the innocent, how can we be sure that our trust in Christ will not be in vain? Well, that leads us to our sixth and final point. The same God who protected Jesus will protect us. In his treatment of Jesus' birth, Matthew is at pains to show how everything is fulfilled according to God's word. I'm thankful for what Larry said on the front end of our sermon, just reminding us, this passage is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Every single part of it, God's saying, hey, I predicted this would happen, see how it's coming true? Hey, I predicted this would happen, see how it's coming true? Since God overcame Herod's evil intentions by protecting our Savior, we can trust him to save us when evil people seem to be prevailing. In Matthew chapter 1, when Mary became pregnant through the Holy Spirit, we read the following words. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the word through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, Matthew 2.15 says, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. He's citing Hosea 11.1 which refers to God delivering his people from Egypt during the Exodus. Just, now get this. This is important because this quotation of Hosea 11.1 kind of tips us off to the main point of this story. Jesus is reliving Israel's story. That's why this is happening the way it's happening. Think about it for a second. Just as Pharaoh tried to have all the children of Israel killed when Moses was born. So Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the new Israel. In these first few chapters of Matthew, you have a man named Joseph, get this, who is the son of a man named Jacob, who has dreams and takes his family, where? Into Egypt in order to save their lives. that sound like any story you know? It's because Jesus is reliving Israel's history. This is not accidental. He fulfills what the first Exodus pictured. Jesus is the perfect son who, in contrast to Israel, obeyed God. And he led his people out of the ultimate bondage to sin. This is why... It says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from Pharaoh's oppression. Is that what it says? No, he'll save his people from their sins. Because that's the greatest bondage that any of us have. And then finally, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, we also see Joseph settling his family in Nazareth as a fulfillment of what was spoken through the prophet. So, Matthew's point is that in citing all these Old Testament texts, that in spite of all the evil attempts to kill God's son... God is committed to protecting Christ so that he could fulfill his mission to save us from our sins. And so when he comes again in power and glory, he will most certainly defeat the devil and judge all those who persist in rebellion against him because he did it when he came the first time. Nothing could thwart his salvation the first time and nothing will thwart his salvation from coming in fullness a second time. So we can be sure of this, brothers and sisters, no matter what 2021 holds for us. If it's more of the same, different, better, worse, we know this. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where there will be no death, mourning, crying, pain, pandemics, forever. And we know that he will do this because of what he did here. Because he's a God who can be trusted when things are, Seemingly coming off the rails, God shows my hands firmly on the throttle. I got this. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you that you do have the whole world in your hands. It's not just a cute song we sing as children, but it's a truth that undergirds and upholds our lives, that keeps us sane, that helps us to live with hope and anticipation of the day that you were coming to make all things new. So Lord, in the midst of this year and all the uncertainty that has come with it, we thank we thank you that these things are certain. That you are a God who is absolutely sovereign over evil. That you are a God who is accomplishing all your purposes. That you are a God who has demonstrated your willingness to come come up beside us, born into our need, born to show your own weakness. To our weakness, you are no stranger. So we thank you that you have not only are sovereign over this world in which we live with all of its trouble and trials and difficulties, but you are sovereign in this world with us until the very end. Comfort us with these truths, strengthen our faith, give us hope for the days to come. We ask all this in your glorious and powerful and merciful name.